So uh, tonight's talk is um, the third of the series of uh, talks on mindfulness. And for those of you who didn't uh, pick up the latest uh, sutta, uh, for those of you who missed uh, on the first meeting, I had a handout, and I know some of you have come in since then. And there are some of the Satipatthana suttas that this series is based on, on the table there. So help yourself to that. So um, what I'd like to talk about tonight is um, is uh, mindfulness of consciousness. Now, the uh, task that I have is to try to make that uh, exciting, <laughs> or at least interesting, because uh, if you read the sutta, it, uh, it, it, anyway, the way I perceive it, it, it feels kind of remote, and uh, and not so clear as to what the next two, the first two were pretty, a mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of feelings were pretty clear, but then the next two, uh, there's a lot of confusion in the field about what they mean. So I'm going to give my translation to it, but please, uh, you're welcome to give your own. Is that, and I have to, it has to be relevant to my life, or what are we doing here, right? So my attempt then will to be to try to make this um, mindfulness of consciousness relevant to getting up in the morning. So I've spent a, a, um, the first two weeks talking a great deal about the value of mindfulness and um, the value of uh, respecting, not only respecting, but being aware of the implications of what we do to our body. And also uh, the uh, being aware of the feeling element. And in Buddhism, the feeling is a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, n- neutrality. And that uh, a whole level of complication and problems come in when we don't realize that uh, at the base of those problems, at the beginning of those problems, really was a reaction to or a, an aversion against uh, the, um, the feeling state of something, whether I liked it or I didn't like it. And then a whole complication comes in after that. And uh, the homework was assigned for people to look at their own personality types uh, in the traditional Buddhist way of seeing uh, whether uh, predominantly the way we act is towards attraction towards things or repulsion towards things or kind of a, a neutrality and not really caring about things. Uh, today, um, talking about consciousness Mindfulness of consciousness um, uh, really is mindfulness of what is happening within our minds. What's going on? Are we aware when we're sad? Are we aware when we're happy? Are we aware of the attitude that we carry into the day when we wake up? Are we aware uh, what it is that uh, when we're irritated and when we're not? Because what 
how the mind works is that there is awareness and then there's the object of our attention and then the everything it's like uh, two pieces of bread on a sandwich and everything that fills the sandwich up is our relationship to those two slices of bread so um, you know I'm sad angry impatient everything is the meat between those two slices of bread so there's the awareness and the object and then the coloration of that object by our mind states that are generated moment after moment and usually being who we are we don't take responsibility for that coloration for the meat between the bread uh, we first of all we won't really own it that's that's the fundamental problem and not owning it comes from it being unpleasant or uh, causing some aversive quality within us so first of all we don't own it we don't want it within our system we don't like it and therefore we won't take responsibility for it because if I owned it then it would somehow implicate me as being uh, responsible for this uh, anger or for this fear or for whatever and so I, I prefer rather than the ownership I prefer giving it off to you so you make me angry you make me fearful and uh, all manner of projections and really all the defense mechanisms have their basis in our unwillingness to own the mind state to believe or allow it it's not even believing it's allowing it uh, to share time with us and uh, usually we don't first more fundamentally we don't really know what's going on anyway it, I've, uh, I was watching the news last week and uh, there was a report about people who use cellular phones while they're driving are as apt to have accidents as people who uh, are drunk while they drive and they said not only uh, while they're talking on the phone which would make sense of course because you're trying to dial the numbers and all of that but three to five minutes after you hang the phone up you're still as likely to have an accident as if you were drunk now you see you're driving the car and you're dealing with all of the implications emotional intensity or whatever went on in that conversation or thinking about something other than the road and that never and we think we can drive right we think we can do it well I can do it just put me behind the steering wheel I can drive and think about things and feel the impact of all that and we can't and yet every morning we get up with the residue of yesterday or last year or our childhood and we think we can go through life with some kind of clarity with that and it just it it seems to color everything we do it seems to intrude upon everything we do 
And it begins by not taking responsibility for it. You know, it's my mother, you know. As long as it's my mother, it will be a problem to us until we die. How are we going to resolve that? How, are we going to, how can we resolve the past? We cannot resolve the past. The past is in stone. So we, by constantly trying to work out our relationship with the past and the present, we're stuck. But if we accept responsibility for what is it that we carry into the present moment, if we just assume and allow that to be a part of the packaging of how I get up in the morning, then we begin to heal ourselves. We begin to allow the fact of this is something that I can deal with, that I can work with now, right now. Now, um, a part of the problem, or uh, much of the problem, maybe all of the problem, is that uh, first is taking responsibility, and then it's seeing the nature of the mind itself because in taking responsibility we're assume, we assume the guilt. I mean, that, you, you see, first we blame it on my mother and then we blame it on ourselves. And so it's very um, important in Buddhism to understand that taking responsibility is not blame at all. It's not pointing another finger backwards. Taking responsibility means you just allow it to be in the, in the moment with, with me, to be contained and allowed within the context of the moment. I mean, if Buddhism uh, does one thing that's radically different than psychology, it's to take the eye out of the picture. And uh, I think many of us here in the room haven't... Uh, address that sufficiently. We're allowing and assuming uh, responsibility for the anger, but then the anger is pointing back towards us as being the guilty party. And we agonize <coughs> over anger or fear or aversion uh, because we assume that we are at fault for those qualities. And then we struggle with them. And we have to go the next step here. We have to go a little deeper in this thing. And that's where meditation is um, extremely helpful for most people. And perhaps longer meditation retreats can be helpful also. Because they begin to give one a foundation to understand that the I itself is a mind state. That's an attitude. We look out through the attitude of I. That's an assumption that we make as we get up in the morning. It's one of the first assumptions we make, if not the first. And so looking through the sense of I-ness or me-ness, I then establish 
responsibility in relationship to that I. But I don't question the I. I question the anger. I question the fear. I can open to the fear. I can open to the anger. I can open to my impatience, my frustration. But I don't seem to be able to open to the I. It seems too too much a part of it all. But it's just another quality of mind. It's another thing that is arising between awareness and the object that freezes the relationship of that object to the subject. And so you can only go so far in feeling your anger without also allowing the eye to become part of that picture. We can only go so far in trying to soothe ourselves with our fear, trying to be comfortable with the fear. Because really the nature of the eye is that it will struggle against whatever it doesn't like based upon the feeling that it has for that thing. Or it will try to hold on and perpetuate something it likes beyond the natural duration in time that that thing lasts. That's the nature of the mind state of I. So for the I to try to settle itself with the discomforts of fear or anger is an impassable task. Because the very nature of the eye is that it struggles. So that's a little more subtle dharma than what we've been talking about in the two weeks. But what is Buddhism about? The Buddhism about harmonizing ourselves with these mind states. It's about seeing, putting an end to suffering, putting an end to struggle, putting an end to conflict at the most subtle levels. And we can't do that as long as we are identified with one of those mind states as opposed to the others. So I'm sure that uh, this week, as we gave the tasks of looking at what character we seem to carry. Somebody with an aversive character probably used it to strengthen their own sense of self-dislike. God, can you imagine me, how aversive I am to everything? How could anybody like me? I mean, it's like, I don't like you. How could you possibly like me? And we will keep defeating ourselves. We will keep defeating ourselves endlessly until we begin to just not move in the struggle. When we don't move in the struggle, everything is seen for just what it is, including the I, including the me. People talk about getting rid of the ego, eliminating the ego, cutting it out. 
but please somebody show me it. I mean, it's, you know, I can cut out a wart or an appendix, but where is this thing? Can you cut the air out? It's not a question of getting rid of ourselves. You know, I've spent a lot of time in many courses and many times, uh, many talks, talking about how it's not a, a question of bettering ourselves. Well, that's more ego as well, but it's also not a question of eliminating ourselves, which can be the aversive and the other response to that. You know, I'm, I'm so, I so much dislike who I am that I want to work in meditation so that I can get rid of myself, eliminate it. And um, we're just not happy with the way we are, are we? So how do we solve this problem? You see now, okay, believe me, if, we could, if I could get rid of myself, I would have done it a long time ago because I've, I've lived X number of years not liking me very well. But at some point, I got tired of trying. Had to put my arms down, you know. With shadow boxing, only takes you so long. There's no, you don't hit anything. <laughs> so your arms get tired of it. And so you have to, you ha- you, what can you do? You have to let it in. You have to let yourself in. As long as we struggle in aversiveness to ourselves, we're so attached to the idea of being, we can't possibly see it for what it is, we, as a mind state, as a quality of consciousness. We can't see it. Because we're, we've taken it as the enemy, and we're convinced that it's coming at us. And so we struggle and struggle and struggle with these things, and it, it's just a, it's just a, I mean, that's what the meditation practice, that's they call it the path. Well, it's the path of struggle until you get tired of doing it. At first, you know, we are so confused that we don't allow anything into our consciousness. Everything is blamed out there. Then the step towards rediscovering ourselves is to assume responsibility for what it is that manifests within my mind, my anger, my aversion, my hatred. And I let that in. But that's not the end step because we have to be very careful of what we do in relationship to ourselves when those emotions are assumed in which we do assume responsibility for them. And for many of us, we get caught back in the cycle of getting buried deeper and deeper into our self-dislike, our self-unworthiness, self-hatred. So the struggle goes on. It's just not outward now. It's just inward. It's not between my mother and me. It's between me internally. So if the I or the sense of I is just an attitude, it's an assumption that I make. Can you imagine what it would be like? Well, if I didn't have that assumption, 
I mean, the body would still, you know, take care of itself and It's a way, it's a, it's a posture, it's a way of looking at objects as outside of self. That's what the mind state does. That's what it brings to look. So when we look out through this, the mind state of I, we see objects in relationship to subject me. That's what the mind state, that's the quality of the mind state. That's the characteristics of it. But it is just a mind state. It's a coloration of the truth. It's part of the meat between the two pieces of bread. Or the avocado for you non-meat eaters. (laughs) So what attitude can I bring, can I generate, that will allow me to bring this together in a way that's ultimately healing. And it seems to me that the attitude of exploration, of exploring it. Now, not the exploration of the conquistador that wants to not only explore it, but capture it, conquer it. But the explorer, the, the pure explorer, who's just interested in discovery, for discovery's sake. I'd like to read a, a poem by Rumi. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a great guest house Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each each guest honorably. He may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Be grateful for whatever comes. Everything that comes within us is an honored part of who we are. You see now, when we really do that, then what happens to the eye? If it's not struggling, it's quiet. You see? Remembering that the eye, the nature of the mind state of eye is that it struggles. So that if we invite something in as a guest and we don't struggle against it, then the sense of ownership of that thing is diminished. And so the thing then ultimately heals into wholeness. As long as there's a struggle, I'm seeing through the mind state of I towards the object and and trying to get rid of it or do something with it. Aversion is just aversion. Not very pleasant, 
but I cannot lift my arms to it. I cannot defend myself from it. I cannot strike a blow against aversion. Because in doing so, I harden the quality itself. I harden its attachment to me, to the sense of I. Because I've hardened the I in my struggle. can't do anything. Ultimately, dharma is nonviolence. It's the ultimate nonviolence. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And when we are no longer when the course of our action is no longer determined by our struggle, then everything opens up to a mystery. It has to be so. It has to be so. What do you think, where do we think things are coming from except from the mysterious? And so even our darkest fear is an invited guest delivering the message of the mystery. We are so used to living with those qualities that Again, we assume that we're causing them. We assume that we generate them, that we are responsible for their presence. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each quiet guest honorably. willing to practice nonviolence. We assume a certain stance of nonviolence when we take a precept of not to kill. We assume a certain non-harm posture when we take any ethical code on. Are we willing to take that nonviolence on internally and stop perpetuating our historical sense of blame and responsibility. To see into the nature of self, to see who we are, is more than seeing our emotions, more than seeing our physical sensations, more than seeing our feelings, of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Because how we see them is as important as what we see. If we look upon them as being something that's happening to me, 
then we are stuck in seeing those objects through the sense of, my, of our mind state of I, through the sense of meanness. And there's only a limited amount of real work we can do in that fix. There's only so much pain we can eliminate from our lives. We can't eliminate it all. But Buddhism doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just feeling your anger. Although that's an enormously important step. It moves towards healing the rift between ourselves and the anger itself. Towards our awareness in the fear. It takes and eliminates the middle of the bread slices, the sandwich portion. And a funny thing happens. It all becomes bread. question is, how clean do we keep our meditation, our awareness? How clean do we keep that tool of our awareness? How quiet is the observation? How still and nonviolent is my attention? To look and see why it is that we meditate at all may give you a deep sense of what it is that we bring to the meditation, bring to the awareness. I was uh, with a friend of mine who um, in the opening years at IMS in Barrie, Massachusetts, I was there for the first three and a half years, so the first three three months courses, I, um, I did the first and third, and this guy did the first, second, and third. He did all three of them and was planning on the fourth, coming to the fourth, and I was very impressed with his commitment. So after his third three-month course and my second one, I sat down with him and I said, uh, you seem, I mean, I've never seen anybody that uh, has as much enthusiasm to sit as you do. And he said, um, oh, I do it to get out of the house. I can't stand to be with my parents. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that's not very clean of a tool. (laughs) So, So we have to look very deeply at what it is that motivates us to sit. What are the reasons? What are we trying to do? Are we we trying to escape from our skin or escape from our home? Are we trying to escape from our mind or escape from our aversion? 
escape from our fear. What is it that mo- what's motivating us? And when something comes up in practice, what's our relationship to it? What do I want from it? Now, as soon as we notice what it is that we're wanting, we're out of the picture. We're in a different dimension to that wanting itself. Because the noticing is no longer involved in the struggle. So when we notice what it is that motivates me, like I want to get away from my parents, then in the realization of that, in the acknowledgement of that, in the seeing of that, we are no longer involved in the struggle. But very quickly, you pick up the banner and go back and fight the cause again. And I'm amazed at how many times we have to remind each other not to struggle. (laughs) I mean, it's the one thing that we've talked about from day one in five years that I've been here in this city and uh, 15 years of teaching, 25 years of... I mean, it's every single... You know, that's it. That's the message of the Dharma. That's the message of the Dharma. I wish that message deep in each of our hearts. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.